John chapter 4. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we are currently going through the New Testament book by book. And we are in 1 John now. We began in the book of Acts. And we are making our good progress. We're excited about what he has for us this morning in his word. First John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who, has, who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that, he might, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just how good you've been to us. Lord, you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You've given us your word. You've given us your promises. Lord, and and we are grateful, Lord, that you continuously work in ways to fashion us and make us more like Jesus. Some of those ways are difficult. Some of those ways, Lord, are hard. They're painful. But, Lord, help us to continuously trust you that you know what's best. 
Lord, and I pray, Lord, that as we continue to walk with you, those of us in this room that know you, and as you prune us and break us to make us more dependent upon you, to be less impressed with ourselves, to be more relying, relying on you, we pray, Father, that we would glorify you, Lord, and we would make you known in this world. Make mature disciples in us, Lord. We want to follow you wherever you lead us. We thank you for the privilege of being called your disciples, your sons and daughters, your friends, all these things that you tell us that we are, that we'd never believe unless you had said it. We thank you for those designations, and we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. These Gnostic false teachers have been denying that Jesus came in the flesh. They've been denying that God would ever come in human form because all human flesh is evil. They also taught that it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies because they don't represent who we really are. And so they lived a sinful uh, lifestyle. And so John has been telling these believers how to recognize false teachers. And he's going to continue to do that uh, as we look at this chapter this morning. The chapter kind of breaks up into two parts. Verses 1 through 6 supremely deal with how to test uh, you know, the spirits and test what you know, true doctrine looks like. And also, we see in verses 7 through the end of the chapter that we're supposed to love. And, and that these sinful lifestyles that were being lived out by these false teachers didn't represent that, uh, <laughs> that reality. And so he gives us five reasons that we're going to see from verses 7 to the end of the chapter why we should love. So we begin in verse 1. Notice in verse 1 he tells us to test the spirits and the reason why we should do so. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now he begins with beloved. I don't want to pass over that. Because he is expressing his heart as an apostle. He loved these people. God had given him a supernatural love for them. He wants them to know that everything that he says is an expression of his love and concern for them. There's been some hard things for them to hear. And we know it's so much easier to hear hard things from somebody when we know how much they care. As the saying goes, they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. So the apostle John is living that out. And he says that here. But he says, do not believe every Spirit. Now, what's interesting here is that it reveals to us that the origination of every doctrine comes from the, from the spirit realm. And, and he emphasizes spirit. He doesn't, he doesn't say don't believe every teaching. He says don't, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And that word test has to do with, with testing something to see if it's pure, like they would test metals to see how pure a metal was. I was they would use this word a lot to describe that. The spirit realm is, is behind uh, every kind of doctrine. In some way or another, doctrine originates somewhere related to the spirit realm. In fact, the spirit realm is behind everything. And one of the things you realize when you come to know Christ is your spiritual eyes are turned on and you actually see what's going on behind the scenes in this world. How many of us, when we first came to know the Lord, you realize that? Raise your hand. Anyone here? Yeah, a lot of you you realize, wow, there's spiritual dynamic going on here. Now, we don't look behind every rock and see a demon. Okay? We don't fixate upon you know, the demonic realm and everything. But we're told in Scripture to not be ignorant of the enemy's devices. And so we know that, that the, 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 these spirits are behind uh, false teaching, ultimately. 
And so he says, remember uh, that these spirits come, these teachings come from somewhere. They're not just some human spirit, uh, you know, espousing some belief. Uh, it, it actually come from somewhere, the spirit realm. And the spirit realm are, is eternal. The physical realm is, is temporary. We're told that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, where Paul said by the spirit, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So the real reality is the spirit realm. And there's been examples in scripture where people are allowed, humans are allowed to see into the spirit realm. And there's a lot going on. I remember as a new Christian, I read the book, um, what was that called? Anyone remember? <laughs> it, was, it, it, was, uh, it was about spiritual warfare. This present darkness. There we go. This present darkness. You know? And that, of course, he uses a lot of liberty. It's a fiction book or whatever. But I remember reading that and just going, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to go to bed tonight after reading this. It's just so many demons, you know, battling and pulling out their swords and, you know, it's like, it wasn't quite like lightsabers, but it seemed like it was pretty impressive there when I was reading it there. And just, just, it was amazing to me to get a, you know, a little, uh, my perspective broadened a little bit related to um, spiritual warfare and what goes on uh, behind the scenes. But doctrine comes from either spirits, which are fallen angels, or the Holy Spirit. That's it. Well, you say, well, they come from man. They don't ultimately originate from man. Because false doctrine comes from unbelievers that are, te- that are false teachers, that are false prophets. And we're told that all unbelievers are under the sway of the enemy. He's actually going to tell us that in the next chapter. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John will tell us this. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So every unbeliever is under the sway of the enemy. They don't realize it. That's why it's called deception. You don't realize what's going on. So surely the false teachers that are going around and teaching this false doctrine, they are, they are being inspired by the demonic realm, whether they know it or not. And so that's good for us to see. It's, it's not just someone on a TV show teaching something in their own imagination and it's completely divorced from the demonic realm or whatever. No. There's inspiration there. And, and, and for sure we know the demonic realm takes advantage of false teaching, capitalizes on it, and further works in people's lives to bind them into, uh, you know, get them into bondage and so forth. False teaching always does damage. So we're told to test everything. Test the spirits. Test everything that everybody says, including myself. Don't put any man, give any person, any teacher so much liberty that you don't test what they say by Scripture. Ever. That's why I have you look down and look at the verses. I want you to see where I'm getting what I'm getting. You know, what I'm teaching is from the Scripture so you can see it for yourself. Acts 17, 11, the, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the word with eagerness, but also they tested what the Apostle Paul said every, daily to see if the things he was saying were so. And so that's what we should be. We should be Bereans. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't flinch when people get offended when we say, do you have a verse for that? That people get really mad at me for saying that. And I'm not saying it in a smart alecky, I'm not that I'm above that, but I'm just saying, you know, I'm saying in a real serious, you know, respectful way, you have a verse for that, and, and people get mad. I've had even pastors get mad at me. Like, well, where... Where do you get that? What's your verse? You know, and, and you have to have a biblical basis for everything 
The demonic realm is behind all false teaching, and they won't reveal who they are, but God's word will, and our discernment will. I love new believers. Some, I've heard, seen it so many times where they, they come across this teaching. They don't know the Bible yet, but something just doesn't sit right. It's the Holy Spirit inside of them doing, I don't know what he's doing, gymnastics or, you know, do, just like going off. Sirens are going off. Red flags are going off. They, they just have this sense because the Holy Spirit's showing them that this person is a counterfeit. And so it doesn't matter if a person says, thus saith the Lord. I don't know why it's always in King James. I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's prophetic utterances that can be outside of the King James English, uh, but it seems like people love to say that. Thus saith the Lord. And then all of a sudden, we're supposed to believe what they say is completely true just because they had the nerve to say that. That's not what God's word says. So often it comes across in the, in the form of, well, God says this, or I believe God says this. And if we don't know God's word, we're going to fall for it. So it doesn't matter if they have a title. Men love titles. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. And, the, you know, they love, the, these Pharisees love to be called rabbi and sit in the seat of Moses. They, you know, unhealthy people always want to have attention drawn to themselves. So it doesn't matter what title they have, apostle or prophet or pastor, or whatever it is. Or if they have a TV show and, or they're a best-selling author. It, everything has to be tested and we have to know God's word. That's why we go through it the way we go through it. And that's why we have the resources there to help us grow in our walk with the, with the Lord so that we can test things because there's great danger. I want to quote the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 through 20 where he said this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. What are, what's ravenous? Ravenous is when you're starved. I mean, you just want to grab something and whether it's a taco truck or whether it's you know, a bag of Triscuits in your, you know, in, your, in your cupboard, whatever it is, I just want food. That's the picture. They're, they're wolves that are starving and they want to feed on sheep. He says you will know them by their fruits. So we, we often quote that related to other Christians. Well, we're supposed to be fruit inspectors. The primary context that Jesus is talking about is talking about false prophets. Not that we shouldn't see fruit coming out of our lives and so forth. But he says, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So Jesus warned us against false prophets. Now John has said the reason, because a lot of false prophets have gone in, on into the world. So it's very important. Now, now he says many have gone out into the world. I don't know if you saw that. There's a lot. There's not a shortage of them. There's many false prophets out there. So we, you know, we shouldn't be surprised when we run into to people that are saying they're speaking for God. They're teaching the things. They may have a, a Bible. They might whatever it is whatever they look like on the outside but second corinthians chapter 11 tells us that satan has his own workers and they masquerade as workers of righteousness because he masquerades as an angel of light so we can't go by outward appearances we can't go by what they use the same language that we do they use the same way they they speak the same way but they're not uh, legitimate Now notice John provides the first test for legitimacy in verse 2, the deity of Christ. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God 
every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, we went over this word confess before when we looked at chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word means to say the same thing as or agree with somebody. So when he says, by this you will know the, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So every teaching that says that Jesus Christ and agrees that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So it's not by accident that John uses Jesus Christ there because Christ is speaking of his mission. It means the anointed one, the Messiah. So it means that Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. That's what the name Jesus means. Jehovah is salvation and he is the anointed one. He has come in the flesh. What does that mean? Well, not just it doesn't just mean that he took on a physical form. That's what they were denying. They were denying that, these Gnostic teachers. But it means more than that. Because a lot of people believe a lot of false things about the Lord Jesus and believe he came in a physical body. So it goes beyond that. It means that he was the promised Messiah. And the promised Messiah, it was, it was uh, the prophet Isaiah said in, in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 that, that uh, one of his names would be Mighty God. He's, the, he's Jehovah God. He never had a beginning. Every false teacher teaches, or not every false teacher, but most false teachers teach that Jesus had a beginning. That at some point he was created, and then God used, the Father used him as the primary agent through which he created everything else. That's the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. But that's not the case. He never had a beginning. And so we remember that the Apostle John has said in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, and the word became flesh. That's what he's talking about. That's how you interpret. Remember, scripture interprets scripture. We know what John means here because he's already said that the word became flesh. So that's what it means when he says Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. God came in human flesh. In the gospel of John, Jesus said, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Now, in the, it doesn't have the word he there. It says, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. The word he is in italics. So he's, God knows that we have to believe that Jesus is divine for us to be saved. Now, we may not mentally understand that at the time, but in our hearts we have to place him in that place of, of deity. And, and we're praying to him, so obviously uh, that is a good start in, in our understanding. But there are many beliefs about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a created being. He was Michael the archangel. The Mormons believe he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. And he had a better plan of salvation. So God the Father, who was a human that was exalted, went with, the, went with Jesus' plan of salvation instead of Lucifer's. And they were brothers. Heresy. Islam believes that Jesus was a prophet. They believe he came in the flesh. But he was a prophet. Not the Son of God, not divine. Judaism teaches today that the Lord Jesus was a teacher, a rabbi and a good moral teacher. Many people believe a lot of things about the Lord Jesus, and some of them show great respect towards him. But when you come short of saying that God, and human, God came in human flesh, that is the spirit of Antichrist. That is denying uh, the Lord Jesus' identity, and that's how we can know this, the, the truth from uh, something that's error. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, 
which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now, he's already spoken of the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is the spiritual influence of, of demons in, in helping humans have a wrong conclusion about the Lord Jesus, to speak evil of him or to uh, say that he's less than he really is and to influence them. The word anti in the Antichrist is not the opposite of. It means against. So he's against Christ. The spirit of Antichrist is the spirit which is against Christ, against who he is, against his mission, against everything about what he represents. So that's important for us to see. When the Antichrist comes, there will come a man that will rule this world for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, the Lord Jesus himself will speak a word and, and, and will uh, annihilate him, at least in the sense of his human form or however that's going to work. But he, there is going to become a man, the Antichrist, and he is going to speak against Christ. We know that. He's going to deny that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's going to deny his mission. He's going to deny he was the promised Messiah. He's going to deny all those things. So he says every spirit or every teaching, because the spirit is behind the teaching, that does not confess or say the same thing or agree with that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that is God in human flesh, is not of God. And he says it's now already in the world. And we see that right now. We see plenty of people that are against what Jesus who against him and against what we believe his identity to be in his word. And so we shouldn't be surprised. Now he gives some encouragement in verse 4. He says, you are of God, little children, and overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So he gives a little encouragement. He didn't want them to think for a moment he was speaking about them. And he's encouraging them and, and talking about the victory that they have, their identity when, they, when we learn about our identity in Christ, it's victorious because it works its way through our lives in, 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 a, in a victorious way. And, and notice he says overcome in the past tense. He says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome, past tense, them. Who's the them? Talking about these demonic spirits that are behind these teachings. And, and then he says, for he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so because of that, he gives us the capacity to live a victorious life. And we quote this scripture a lot. Greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. We can say it so fast, it's almost like one syllable. You know, greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. You know, we're... But do we think about the context here? What's the context? The context is being able to have victory over all of these things, victory over false teaching, victory over the enemy and related to how, him wanted, how he wants to deceive us and take us away from the truth that's in, in Christ. And he says in verse 5, they're of the world, talking about uh, these, these spirits and these false teachers, therefore they speak as of the world and the world he hears them. You know, the world loves a little religious talk here and there. They love a little God, little religion, little, they love all that. And, and these, a lot of the false teachers today will speak a lot of those things, but you'll never hear them talk about sin. You'll never hear them talk about repentance. You'll never hear them talk about the sin of, of, uh, of denying Christ and the, and, the, and the effect of that on our eternal destiny. You'll never, it's always feel good, touchy, feel good, positive. It's always positive, positive. We want to hear positive. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and patience. 
It takes a man that's called by God to tell the people of God what they need to hear from God, by the Spirit of God, for people to grow. But if I'm just going to give out what people want to hear all the time, I'm never going to talk about Romans chapter 1. I'm never going to talk about Revelation chapter 21. I'm never going to, there's so many passages I would avoid. <laughs> That's why when they put the laws down, what says that we can't teach about certain sins and all these things, the Calvary Chapel pastors and churches like them are going to be the first ones that are going to be, uh, you know, fined or put in prison or whatever because we're going through the whole counsel of God. We can't cherry pick the scriptures and just teach here and there whatever we want to teach, whatever we like to, <laughs> to talk about. So he says, they are of the world. The world listens to them. That's what, we have to be very careful about that. Now notice John gives the second um, test for legitimacy in verse 6, the apostles' doctrine. He says, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit, the, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Any teacher who claims to be from God has to agree and with and teach in accordance with what the apostles taught in the New Testament and, and what's in line with the whole scripture in general. And so that's what John is saying. We are of God. We're legitimate. They're not. And if, you, if someone knows the Lord, they're going to be in agreement with us because we're of God. It's almost like a mathematical equation, you know. Legitimacy equals legitimacy. You know? And so if they're legitimate... They're gonna they're gonna recognize that we're legitimate, and if we're we're legitimate and we are, we're gonna recognize that they're legitimate. It's it's a, it works perfectly together. People that don't hear us as believers, and we're telling them the truth, and they won't listen to us, they won't listen to God's word. I'm talking about people that don't know the Lord. They're they're showing us and revealing to us that they don't have the Spirit of God inside of them, that they're not in the truth. And so he says, by this we know the Spirit of truth. And the spirit of error. So the first test, what do they believe about Jesus' deity? The second test, are they they teaching everything that's in accordance with the rest of Scripture related to the apostles' doctrine? I mean, does the teacher agree with the Trinity? Does he believe that there is a heaven and a hell and that we have to be born again and that there's the cross is the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins? Does he believe? I mean, there's you can go down the list of the essentials of the Christian faith. We have to have those things. Now he moves on to love in verse 7. And he'll keep on going all the way through the end of the chapter. But he, he goes from testing the spirits in verses 1 through 6 to testing our spirits in verses 7 and following. And he gets to the first reason why we should love in verse 7. And that is God is love. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and, and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, there are a lot of things that God is. He's not just love. He's he's many things. He's beyond what we can possibly understand about him. But when he says, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves, it's implying, among other things, that they they have to have love, Show love from God, among other things that he just spoke about here, that they're speaking the truth and so forth. There are people that can show unconditional love that don't believe anything related to Jesus. And then they're not showing supernatural godly love, but they can show sacrificial love. People that before knowing Christ, they can, in places here and there, can be sacrificial and selfless and so forth, just not in a consistent way. 
So those people don't know the Lord, but they have to, they have, to have a, a, a relationship with him. And then if they have a relationship with him, then they have the capacity to love how he would have us to love. So that's the first reason we should love, because God is love. And, and that goes to why he saved us. Sometimes in songs, like in Christian songs, you'll hear them talk about, we are so lovely, and so he, that's why he died for us. And that's not true. He died for us because he is love. Because if, we, if it was based in part about us, then we would be in heaven and we would have some kind of glory related to it. Well, we were so, and I know he created us, so he ultimately gets the glory, but ultimately it's because God is love. That's why he died for us. That's why he loves us. Not because we're so lovable. All through scripture, he talks about that, that we weren't super lovable. So we have to balance again scripture with scripture. That's why he died for us, because he is love. It originates in his who he is, not in who we are. The second reason why we should love is to follow after God's example. We see that in verse 9. He says, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we may, might live through him. So the love of God was manifested. Again, he came in human form. He came in physical form. These, these false teachers were teaching against that. And he says, God has sent his only begotten son. The word begotten means one and only. It's a very distinct word. It means one and only. His one and only unique son he sent into the world that we might live through him. So if you ever question God's love, and we, we do at times as believers, let's just be honest. We question God's love sometimes. And it's not a correct conclusion, obviously, but just being honest in, our, in who we are, we, we sometimes question his judgment or his love or whatever it is. And anytime that happens, I always try to encourage myself and other people, take a good long look at the cross. Anytime you question his love for you and his decision making, take a good long look at that cross. Because that screams at us. Even through the filter of our tribulation and our trials and our hardship and our difficulties, it breaks through all of those things and we get to see him for the loving father that he is. We should never question his love ever again after looking at that cross. And that encourages me many times when I've struggled with that. And so he calls us to follow in his example because we're his children. You want your kids to follow after you, at least the good things. And so he says, be like me. Love because I am love. Then he continues in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God. Oh, there's, I thought we were lovely <laughs> and so lovable. But not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So not that we love God. He's being honest. Paul said it in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he loved us. And he's going to get into that in a moment. He loved us first and sent his son to be the propitiation. What does that word mean? It's the second time we've seen it as we've gone through the book. It means satisfying payment. It's the wrath that we deserved that he took in our place. So when you, you could put in there but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfying payment for our sins or the satisfied wrath. He took the satisfied wrath that we deserved. That's how we can know that God loves us. And then he adds, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
And it's so true we can forget this because we have our focus on ourselves so much of the time. And this culture and everything that we see in, 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 in the media and in entertainment, it coddles that self-focus and to put our attention on ourselves and put ourselves first. God's always trying to get our attention off of ourselves and onto him and onto others. And he's saying, because, because that's how, what God did. So he's saying, he's, some, he's saying something hard to them. He says, beloved again, you who I love, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And again, as I said last week, that means we have to find out what needs are. We need to be actively involved in people's lives. And we need to know what the needs are so we can pray and we can see if we can help. Last week he said, and when we looked at those passages, he said, if anyone shuts up his heart, sees a brother in need and shuts up his heart, then he has neither seen or known God. That's a big deal for us. It's a very convicting thing. We need to recognize that other people have needs and he wants to use us. Sometimes we can question why God allows us to be in need sometimes. Well, so often it's time, it's, it's because he wants to use that situation to give other people in the body the blessing of being able to serve us. Oh, no, you can't serve me. No, no, I don't want to ask for help. I'm okay with other people asking help all day long. But when it comes to me, oh, no, no, I don't ask for help. No, no, no. I'll just take it to the Lord in prayer, and I'll be by myself, and I, I, don't, have any, I don't need anybody to help me. And, and God says, you're, you're robbing someone else of the blessing of serving you and helping you and using their gifts. You need to humble yourself and admit your need. Maybe you're here today, you have a great need, and you're afraid to mention it to anybody. Mention it to us. Let us pray for you. Let us see if we can meet that need financially or physically. Or That's what we're here for. That's what the body of Christ is here for. So he's saying to the extent to which God has loved us, we need to love one another. The third reason for us to love is because... Um, Love is how God is seen in this world. Notice in verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. So the totality of who God is in his fullness, the Trinity, the totality of who he is, no one has seen God like that. But how he is seen in this world is through love. That's how we... Get, we understand how he works in this world is through the body of Christ. So, yes, no one has seen God, but people are supposed to experience his love. They're supposed to see his love by seeing his love manifested through his, his people. So he says, if we do that, if we love one another, God abides, um, God abides in us. And it's been perfected in us. So we have to understand that God's plan for love in our lives is that he'll be seen in this world and it starts here if we can't be loving and transparent and take care of people's needs here how are we ever going to do it out there and so he says that's how it's perfected the love of God is perfected by having a showing that love to others in the body of Christ and then God is seen now notice in verses 13 through 16 we see the fourth reason for his for to love others and that's because love is the believer's assurance this is often overlooked in this passage he says verse 13 by this we know and that's our word gnosko knowing by experience by this we know by experience that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit now people focus on the spirit here which is great because he reveals it to us that's how he's actually made it happen But the assurance is coming from the fact that we love one another 
not supremely that we have his spirit. He does that in other places in the scriptures. Here he's taught saying that God shows us that we are, are abiding in him because of how we love one another. And we'll see that further as we continue to read. Verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses, again, that's agreeing with or saying the same thing as, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. So God is living in us by his Spirit, and he in God. And look at the next verse. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love is the key. Love coming through our lives assures us that we're in the truth and we're in him. Because he is love and he has given us his spirit who gives us the capacity to love how he loves so that God is seen in this world and that he is glorified and that love is perfected in us. That happens because the love that, that he works in and through our lives. It gives us assurance. And obviously, if he reveals that to us in First John here, he knows that we need that. We, he, we need assurance. We know that the Spirit testifies with our spirits that we're children of God, what the, what the Scripture says. We know we've been saved. But there's something about being comforted by God that we're one of his children because we are walking in the way that he would have us walk. And he knows that that comforts our hearts, it, it encourages us, and he's not going to stop there. <laughs> he's going to keep going. In verses 17 through 20, he gives us the fifth reason to love, and that is that love is the believer's boldness in the day of judgment. Look at verse 17. Love has been perf- perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, that means right now, because as he is, meaning love, so are we in this world. Believers will not be at the great right throne judgment that we see at the end of the book of Revelation. That's only for unbelievers. They'll be resurrected and given a body to face that judgment. And their names, the, the, the Lamb's book of life will be open and other books. And anyone whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. And that's a very sobering, humbling, I mean, just heavy idea for us to think about and God wants us to preach the gospel and to help save as many people as possible until he comes but believers will not be at that judgment we're going to be at the bema seat what's called the bema seat the judgment seat of Christ and you can read about it in second corinthians chapter 5 and it's a it, people sometimes erroneously in my opinion speak about it as if it's just a reward ceremony or an award ceremony. Because in, the, in Corinth and other places in that time, at the Bema seat, this judgment seat, officials would reward athletes and give them their crowns and their, their, they got little uh, wreaths that they put on their head. They didn't get a gold medal back then. But also there were uh, legal disputes handled at, the, at that place and other things that, were, that would happen. And, and the picture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and other places when he talks about us, that you know, everything's going to be tested by fire. Notice, you know, we've just been talking about testing the spirits earlier, right? Well, he's going to test our works. And he's going to test everything that we did for him as believers. And whatever remains is what our reward is going to be based off of. And he says that, that there'll be those that barely escape that as by fire. 
that won't get any rewards, but will, because they, they didn't serve whatsoever, they didn't give, they didn't, weren't used by God, and, and so it says they barely escape, wood, hay, or stubble. And, and so he's showing us now that love gives us boldness on that day. Why would that happen? And why would we need that? God wants us to have boldness at the judgment seat of Christ. He wants us to have boldness before him. Because he, he wouldn't lay all this out for us if he didn't. So he says, if we love as he loves, and we're all growing in that, there will come a time when we're before him at the great, not the great white throne judgment, but the judgment seat of Christ, and we'll have boldness on that day that we love. Because so much of what we do for him sometimes isn't always done in love with the right motivation. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 13 that if we're not doing things in love, it counts for nothing. He even says, if we offer our bodies to be burned. So if we're a martyr, we give our bodies testifying of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And we give, offer our bodies to be burned as a martyr. And we don't do that in love, that it counts for nothing. That wasn't just hyperbole or exaggeration or poetic anything. That was true. Everything that we do has to be done in love. And he's saying if we do that, and if we love boldly and with the right motivation then we'll be bold on that day. He wants us bold on that day to stand before him and say, I did love, I did do the things that you called me to do, and I did them for the right reason, and I did them in a spirit-directed way. And, and no one is going to be more blessed by blessing us with rewards on that day than the Lord Jesus. We think we'll be blessed, but he'll be blessed. It's like when you bless your child when they've done well. You want to bless them so badly. You can't bless disobedience. You can't bless what you can't bless, but you want to bless them. And so when they're good and they do all this, you just get to you know, open up your heart and just let it all go like a floodgate of blessing upon them. And if our hearts, comparatively speaking, are evil, then how much more does he want to pour out blessing on that day of, of facing him face to face by ourselves with the Lord Jesus right there before him? Have to give an account for our lives as Christians. And he says he wants us to have boldness on that day. It's a beautiful thing. Now he gets to something else in verse 18. He says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. It's so easy to disconnect verse 17 from verse 18, isn't it? And just to quote that scripture, we do a lot. Perfect love casts all, all fear. That's another one syllable. First love casts all fear. One syllable, boom. And that that is true. We can apply that different ways. But look what he's talking about. He's relating that to the day where we're standing before him. And the day that we're standing giving account for our lives. And we can stand in boldness before him and give an account for our ministries and and say it's a result of, of love. The love that you gave me. And that's why I did what I did. So he's saying if we are true believers who demonstrate our true validity by loving, we don't have to fear judgment at the Bema seat. Because first of all, that judgment isn't about torment. That's the great white throne judgment. We're not even at that judgment. So, but, but that's so true related to us facing him. We don't have to fear facing him someday. That's what the boldness is about. We don't have to fear facing him. We can have boldness before him because we've lived a lifestyle of love. And, and the, 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 the full intent of his love being imputed into our lives has, has been fulfilled. 
When we're on the, at that day, the great, the, uh, the, the Bema seat there, the, the judgment seat of Christ, and we have boldness on that day, the fullness, or the full purpose of his love has been fulfilled in us. So we don't have to fear that day because we've been made perfect in love. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, I could spend weeks on it. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. You know, you could, hmm, you could take that verse, just walked. Just think about all of, you know, man's religion says, um, we do this to get this from God. That's man-made religion. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. Christianity is God's attempt to reach man. And, and And he loved us first. And he loved us first in so many different ways. And so our Christian life should be a response. Everything in our life should be worship. Worship is a response to something, to him. So our lives should be motivated. Everything that we do, I just, a, a, a woman um, sent me a message on Facebook. She responded to one of my posts <clears throat> about not knowing the Lord and so forth, and she didn't understand that. She was thinking that she was okay because she was baptized and got into all of those things. But I said, we don't do anything for God because of what, of, because of to get him from, from something or to get heaven. We don't do things to get heaven. We do things for him because we already have heaven. And that was a big light that went on in my mind. A, few, a couple years after I came to know the Lord, when I understood about grace and that everything should be a response to what he's done for us. So everything should be worship. Everything should be a response. He's the initiator. We're the responder, not the other way around. And then everything gets to be worship and everything gets to bring him glory. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 talks a lot about our inheritance in Christ. But then in chapter 4, he begins the last half of that book saying, in light of all of that, walk worthy of the calling with which you have received. So everything should be a response to what he's already done. Now he closes in verses 20 and 21. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So these false teachers were saying, I love God, but they were hating their brother. And so we, have, we can't have hatred going on in our hearts as believers. We have to have love. And he says, if we are engaged in hatred, we are lying. And he says, we can't love God whom we haven't seen if we, if we aren't loving ones that we have. The, intent, the, the idea is it's easier to love people we can see. So if we love people that we can see, if we're not loving people we can see, then how can we love God that we have to love in faith? And so it's a good exhortation. What are the needs going on of other believers in our lives? Not just here, but even beyond these walls. What are needs that are going on? How can we serve people? How can we be available to people? Some people hold back because they don't want to get hurt. Well, I've been burned before. I've, I've loved people. I've tried to help and people have hurt me. And so I'm not going to do that anymore. He hasn't given us that option because it gives us an opportunity to forgive. It gives us an opportunity to identify with the sufferings of Christ who was rejected. His love was put out there and trampled on. That helps us understand a little bit more about our Savior. It helps us to be a little bit more uh, spirit directed too. Because it helps us understand how, who he's wanting us to minister to because we're not afraid of how we're going to get hurt. When we pray for our kids, 
here for these kids and when we pray for our kids in our home, we pray that they would aggressively, boldly love and not be afraid of being hurt. Jesus loved you even though you've hurt him. Jesus loved me even though I've hurt him. And so that's what he's called us to do. And I love this fellowship, how we are growing in love and people are meeting needs and we're helping people move and we're doing all kinds of things in this body. We're bringing meals, we're, you know, all of those things. That's great. We need to keep going. We don't have to be afraid of, oh no, we're loving too much around here. They were in danger. Something bad's going to happen if we keep loving light. No, it, it's, it's just going to get greater and greater. It's going to be more of a blessing, more of a blessing. And he says, all men will know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. One of the greatest ways we can preach the gospel is by our love towards each other because people take notice. People know when legitimate love is being offered. And when they see that, they want it because the world doesn't have it. We can't out-entertain people. The world is going to always entertain. They can't do this, though. They can't have unconditional love. They can't have the Spirit using His gifts through our lives to build each other up. They, can't, they, don't, have no, they don't have any capacity. So He calls us to do the things that only we can do. That's what people need. And so when the Spirit speaks to our hearts, and He does if we're open to hearing, so often He speaks and we're not listening, but if we're open to that Spirit, His Spirit prompting us, we'll hear Him say, Go and help that person. Offer your help here. That person that's pumping their gas, go and offer to, to pay for their gas. Or go, go fix someone's car. He wouldn't say that to me. That <laughs> may be worse. Like, you're going to make it worse. And someone with that real gift has to come in and you've created more work for them. But whatever it is, be available. You know, the, I learned this as a new Christian. You want to be used by God. You don't have to be incredibly gifted. You don't have to be charismatic. You don't have to be a lot of things. But you need to be fat. You need to be faithful available and teachable. And so I've tried to be fat for 24 years. And I'm growing in being fat. And I hope that you're going to be growing in being fat as well. He just wants a life that's yielded. And he'll take that life and do far more than we could ever ask or think. Forget thinking that you're less than. You're not less than. You're exactly who he made you to be. And he'll use you beyond what you could ever dream of. Let's pray together. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you that you loved us first. We want our lives to represent worship. Help us to test every spirit. You call us, Lord, to hold people accountable for what they say in the church and outside the church. Give us the grace to do that. Give us the power. Give us understanding of your word even more. And Father, help us to love. May we be known by our love. Give us so many more opportunities to love each other and to love people in this world. Lord, we recognize that this world is love-starved. And Lord, you have so much love to give through our lives. Lead us by your Spirit. We pray there would be a supernatural work of you as we continue to grow in these things. We thank you that you've told us so many times to love each other. We need to hear it so many times. We thank you, Lord, for what your work, how you're working in our lives and what you're doing. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be a blessing to your heart. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins and giving us the capacity to know you and to live like you lived on this earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat>